Welcome to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply them to work and life. This week, we got to talk with Chris Dobbins, the Human Capital Strategic Consultant for the Office of Human Resource Strategy and Program Design for the NSA. What? Yes, that NSA, one of the largest intelligence gathering agencies in the world. Okay, so now our phones are tapped? Yeah, maybe, but uh, actually, we're just joking, folks. I'm sure there's no phone tapping going on here. Right. Uh, Our talk with Chris was fun, and we discussed a lot of behavioral science principles and how they apply inside organizations, particularly large organizations like the federal government. Uh, We talked about what it might take to get people to leave their job and how much of a raise would be enough to make that move worthwhile and how he looked at behavioral science principles in order to explore that. Yeah, the conversation also veered into how ethics get applied when using behavioral science and how it is uh, important to ensure that you're doing what you're doing is ethical and that you've got a good ethical approach. That kind of led us into a discussion about bandwagon effects, uh, loss aversion, some interesting conversation went along the, uh, the way. Yeah, and we talked about what books would be good for people to read to understand mental accounting, anchoring, bandwagon effect, and all those other fun behavioral science principles and really get a, a good understanding of it. So uh, one thing I think that was really important is that we talked about how people change, or Chris brought up how people change, situations change, and that employer value proposition could change as quickly or as often as weekly, and the need to adjust it on a real-time basis. Yeah, that, was a, that, that was a great part of the conversation. So listen up, and we hope you enjoy this Behavioral Grooves podcast with Chris Dobbins. Welcome, Chris. We are super excited to have you here today, although I'm a little concerned that uh, my computer will be hacked now since we're dealing with the uh, the NSA, but I think we should be fine moving forward. So well, we're recording you, but are you recording us at the same time? <laughs> well, the, so so uh, good morning, and thanks for having me again on the advice of counsel. I think I'll uh, not answer that last. Question. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. Well, we'll take our we'll take our chances with that. So, um, Chris, we have been starting our our recent podcast with what we're calling a lightning round, and so it's just a series of four quick questions. Uh, we want some quick responses, and uh, it's kind of fun. We'll, we'll, we'll start off with that, if you're okay with that. Sure. All right. So first, lightning round question. Are you a cat or a dog person? Uh, so I would say that I'm a dog person, but given the fact that um, my wife owns eight cats, I think I'm. I think I'm. I'm a. I'm a cat person by default, unfortunately. Wow. Okay. Question number two: Did Richard Thaler deserve the Nobel Prize in Economics this year? Uh, so, as Kurt knows, since we uh, we actually um, highlighted uh, Mr. Thaler in our conference presentation earlier this year, before he was acknowledged, my answer could only be, "Of course, he did." <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. We're gonna we'll we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that later here. Uh, incentives, good, bad, or ugly? Uh, so I'll have to go with uh, with ugly. <laughs> All right. Uh, loss aversion or social pre- pressure? Which do you think is the stronger motivator? Loss aversion or social pressure? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, you're saying loss aversion. Sorry. Um, or social pressure. Uh, um, 
I, I guess I'll probably uh, I'll say loss aversion, although uh, it's probably an answer un, uh, uninformed with by knowledge. <laughs> well, good. So, but it had confidence, and that was that was a plus. Right, exactly right. There you go. So eight cats. You are a, you are a cat person by default. <laughs> yeah, by family relationship only. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for that, Chris. I know uh, those weren't in the notes that we sent you uh, prior to this, so that was off the cuff, and we appreciate your candor um, with that. So, so can you tell us how you got interested in behavioral science or behavioral economics? Yeah, so uh, um, I, I was reflecting on that a little bit last night, actually, at home, and uh, and it occurred to me that my probably my initial interest in this area uh, was actually uh, probably prompted in a uh, a psychology class that was actually taught in high school. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so you don't uh, you don't typically have psychology related classes taught at the high school level, uh, but we we actually had a uh, uh, you know sort of a introductory psychology class that was taught. Um, uh, in high school, and again, I was uh, uh, I was quite intrigued by that in the subject matter, and uh, I think that was actually some of what um, then uh, predisposed me to you know take uh, you know sort of an industrial psychology curriculum in college, uh, which again um, mostly has led me to kind of my uh, area of expertise again, which is compensation and total rewards, uh, you know, over the uh, ensuing uh, 35 years now, uh, again, but th that's not still not to suggest that I know what I'm going to be when I grow up. <laughs> no, that's that's cool. So where did you go to high school? I'm curious. What what high school would have had a, a yeah? So uh, so uh, again, I'm a, I'm a product of um, uh, Catholic the Catholic educational institutions, which explains a great deal about me, um, and so. Uh, uh, so again, I went to a Catholic elementary school and then went to uh, uh, an all boys uh, Catholic high school, uh, you know, up in the uh, up in the Cleveland, Ohio area. All right. Well, and do you, do you remember what about that that course that was that you got so interested in? Was it just the general nature of psychology or understanding human behavior? What was the what was that trigger that you had that said, wow, this is really interesting? Yeah, so now you're asking me to really remember the ancient past, and I don't remember where that came into play exactly. But again, it was the it was the whole the whole idea about uh, you know that there's sort of a uh, you know an undiscovered country that's going on inside of all of us that uh, you know we all have our uh, you know personal drives and motivations and expectations and all those kind of good things uh, that I think uh, as a as a high school student. I don't know that I'd ever given uh, full thought to, uh, but again, that uh, it, again, it, the whole deal, of course, is uh, you know you're you're sparking awareness more than anything else in people, yeah. and uh, and I think you know that that was probably the the tipping point for me. Well, I think it's fascinating that uh, not only were you exposed to it in high school, which I think is cool, and I have to just have a little parenthetical here that I went to an all-boys Jesuit high school and had a psychology course at my senior year as well. <laughs> so uh, right. That probably explains a great deal about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. but, uh, so so just, just for that, but uh, I think it's interesting that 
you were exposed to it, and it 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 caught your attention. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, we get exposed to a lot of things. Did, did uh, it catch your attention? Do you remember? I I, I do. Re I remember my my psychology class in um, in high school, and I it was I was nonplussed by it. Okay. Yeah. It, it, honestly, it wasn't a a big deal for me. I didn't actually get interested in behavioral uh, sciences until I was in college and okay. had a, had a consumer course, but. So yeah, so I think that that's that's a terrific testimony to your curiosity, Chris. So Chris, the the element of psychology and behavioral sciences uh, is a key component of of uh, the work that you're doing now. But when did you start? I mean, did have you always been bringing that component into the work that you're doing, or how how did you bring that level throughout the the history that you have in in your work life? Yeah, so I, I would uh, I would venture to say that uh, uh, for maybe probably the <laughs> the first twenty twenty plus years of my career, again, which have uh, actually mostly been spent, uh, you know, in the whole uh, you know pay and compensation related area, that yeah. uh, I was probably adorably clueless, uh, you know, about the uh, the intersection of again some of the you know psychological or behavioral uh, related elements that were probably in play and probably dancing around right in front of me during that period of time. Um, I think it was probably uh, more, you know, more in the last uh, maybe 10, 10, 10 ish years or so, again, that I've, um, uh, you know, uh, probably built on things that I maybe didn't know that I knew. Okay. Uh, and have and again, mostly have self-educated myself on some of the uh, uh, you know theoretical and applied research that's been going on, and that has been reaching uh, you know more the mainstream here in these last couple of years. Yeah. So tell us tell us a little bit about how you're applying that behavioral science to what you're doing right now. And I know we had uh, you you spoke at the World at Work conference last year and. Uh, you you talked a little bit about how you were using, but but could you share some of those insights with the listeners? Yeah, sure. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll shamelessly fall back on what we've already talked about in our, our uh, prior presentations. But uh, um, so we've uh, we've not done a huge amount. I guess the I guess the biggest area where we've made some inroads, um, and again, I'm not sure that we knew that we were leveraging, uh, you know, some of the you know, neuroscientific and behavioral things specifically, but uh, we uh, we actually did operationalize um, something in uh, uh, in our retention incentives that we uh, provide to employees. Um, again, where we where we got you know fairly uh, fairly strict criteria in terms of you know kind of the who, what, when uh, questions, but uh, one of the areas that uh, always eluded us was this issue about how much to pay people, Okay, uh, you know, to retain their services. Um, and uh, so we, uh, we, put, we thought a little bit more about that. And uh, mostly, um, I, it may have been just random, but I think, uh, I think we hit on something where we said, well, you know, let's try to um, uh, leverage a little bit of kind of that just noticeable differences work yeah. that's been done. Um, because again, mostly serendipitously, you know, again, we you know, talk to our employees and again, we'll frequently, you know, ask them the kind of the, 
uh, you know, kind of metaphorical question about, you know, well, how much money, you know, how much of a pay raise would you uh, be willing to accept to go to a different job? And uh, again, people inevitably would always say, well, I'm not changing jobs for anything less than a 10% increase. And, you know, the whole room would say that. We would like, well, wait a minute. Why did, why is everybody saying 10%? Yeah. And of course it turns out that we, we've come to find that again, that has anchors in some of the neuroscientific research where again, uh, people, you know, begin to perceive differences and that typically in their five senses uh, you know, where there are differences, you know, that approximating in kind of that 10 to 12% range, that's the level where people can perceive differences. And again, our belief is that that's the uh, tipping point uh, that, you know, that will cause people to make a decision one way or another. And we effectively incorporated some of that into uh, a retention incentive worksheet that we use in terms of uh, anchoring an amount that we think will influence a person's behavior. Oh, that that's really interesting. That, that I, so that that ten percent figure is what kept coming up in the job move. And how did you construe that back to the retention uh, uh, side of it? Yeah, right. So uh, so it was a little bit. It's a little bit uh, less direct, but uh, uh, again, so our worksheet effectively kind of says, well, you know, okay, we think you know you're potentially predisposed to leave, uh, you know, and one of two things uh, we anchored the amount to um, either uh, a, a potential salary offer that the person had received and found a delta between their current salary and a salary offer that they had received or, uh, you know, kind of what the prevailing market rate was for their job and found that delta. Uh, and that served as a basis for the calculation. But we, we kind of said to ourselves, well, you know, do we have to necessarily offer that exact amount, or could we get somebody to maybe stick around for less? So we gave our managers the option to say, uh, you know, hey, you can give the person 100% of this difference, uh, you know, as a potential retention incentive, or you can vary that amount, uh, you know, maybe down to as low as 90% of what either the salary offer or the market um, uh, salary offer might be. And again, we saw that employees would be willing to accept, uh, you know, somewhere in that 90 to 100 percent threshold, uh, you know, and 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 stick around. Uh, so, again, that was the, where we had incorporated at least an element of that just noticeable differences in, uh, uh, you know, in what we operationalize here. That is really um, very. I, I love the fact of of you being able to take that research and then apply that research in a way that actually probably made some significant difference for that. Now, you know, one of the things that we try to get at is really, you know, how do you, how do, how can people apply behavioral science in their work and in their life and various different things? And one of the things that we've run into, um, both in the conversations that we've had with people in, in this podcast, but also just in, in real life, is that we get a number of practitioners who are going, oh, I really like this, and this is really interesting stuff, but then they have to uh, get that approved or, or bring the behavioral science component up to senior leadership. Um, and wondering if you had any insights for people, particularly since you work in a 
and what I would consider to be a, you know, a governmental associate, you know, organization that might have a hierarchy that uh, might be even more so than many organizations. You know, is there, was there anything that you had to do to, to bring uh, behavioral science into the NSA or was it something that you were able to just get by and kind of sneak under the radar or was it something that wasn't even uh, discussed or, or did it even matter for you guys? Uh, yeah, so I would say that uh, uh, the areas where we've been successful or maybe less successful, it was a little bit of a mix of uh, maybe both of how you characterized it, both kind of maybe a, uh, 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 you know, decisions from intentionality as well as a little bit of sneaking under the radar. Um, so the, uh, uh, so we, we've done a little bit of both. Again, then that retention incentive piece that I referenced, again, we mostly just did that uh, on our own. Uh, you know, we didn't ask anybody about that. We just incorporated right. that into the worksheet. Uh, but on other areas, again, um, uh, again, we've uh, you know had to um, had, had you know had discussions with uh, you know senior management, and those have not always been entirely successful. Um, <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. As if that was a surprise. Um, and and I and I understand why. And again, this is. Uh, this is still sort of something of a, a brave new world, and uh, and again, you are you are walking a pretty tight line in terms of uh, you know instances where you're looking to shape behavior, uh, but again, you don't want to um, stray across the line where it looks like you're actually manipulating people. Right. Uh, and and so I think we've we've shown a little bit more of a uh, uh, conservative and cautious approach. Uh, to doing what we've done here in the more recent past, um, uh, you know, but we've talked about, uh, you know, doing um, uh, doing some doing some communications effort to, uh, you know, do, uh, to address people and their mental accounting, yeah. and some of uh, some of where you know people are doing, uh, you know, uh, anchoring and framing, uh, you know, with the idea that uh, we can help shape people's expectations. Uh, you know, down the road, if we if we do some of those things within a, you know, in a light-handed, thoughtful, uh, you know, and uh, constructive way, um, I, I can't say that we've done a lot. Um, uh, but again, there's I think we're still kind of in an emerging awareness um, uh, zone for right now. Uh, but I, again, I think the the future's in front of us, and uh, um, there's and there's nowhere to go but up. Well, we had in your in your presentation at the World at Work conference, you you talked a lot about the ethics of this, and and again the component of of making sure that you are not manipulating, and and that was some of the the message that you sent out, and I think it was very uh, appropriate um, from that perspective. Uh, I'm wondering if you again going back to to Richard Thaler and Nudge and his paternal liberalism. Um, component of, of, you know, still allowing people choice, but nudging them in the right direction. Is that the, the mode or kind of the thought pattern that you're having when you're thinking about these things with the, with the work that you do? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so again, I'll cite a, a more recent uh, uh, effort that we tried to undertake, and again, I'm not sure that we've made a huge amount of headway, but uh, uh, we uh, so we tried to um, 
uh, harness a little bit of that uh, bandwagon effect. Okay. So I'm, I'm again, I'm sure you recognize it. Again, the idea was, um, uh, you know, here internally, our impression is is that you know, again, our employees are, uh, you know, thoughtfully, uh, you know, saving for retirement through again some of the uh, programs that we offer, uh, specifically, you know, our 403 B program, which is the similar to the 401 K. Um, but again, we were wondering whether or not we might be able to uh, effectively juice people's retirement contributions, uh, you know, in that regard, uh, you know, by communicating, uh, you know, what the, you know, what the average uh, contribution rate were yeah. of all of their peer employees and, and publish that, you know, by grade level. Right. So that individuals could look and say, hey, uh, you know, I'm contributing at, you know, eight and a half percent, but. Uh, you know, these guys published something here that says that the peers, you know, that are um, roughly uh, uh, economically um, uh, uh, similar to me, you know, are contributing at, you know, 12 and three quarters percent. Gee, I wonder if I should be doing that, too. Yeah, that is that is so interesting. And, and so uh, can you tell us any results? Uh, do you have? Do you have uh, findings on this at this point, Chris? Uh, so, um, yeah. So that's that's less of a happy news story. So again, we, <laughs> again. So I, I understand. Again, so uh, keep in mind. Again, you're talking about a very, you know, a very conservative, uh, you know, a, a non-risk taking um, institution you know, which really is all government effectively, yeah. uh, you know, again, but the, you know, again, we toss this around just as a, as a proof of concept. Right. Uh, uh, again, but again, I have a very vivid recollection of, you know, getting a phone call from the program manager that's associated with this, uh, you know, this particular uh, benefits program, uh, you know, and her, her, the initial words out of her mouth were, we're not doing that. Mm. Oh, wow. And I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, I will, you know, let's talk about that before you start saying we're not doing that. And again, I, uh, I again, I couched it in, in terms of really kind of a proof of concept, uh, you know, with the idea that uh, this would be something beneficial, you know, both to the employer as well as to primarily the employee. Um, yeah, but again, there's a, I'm sorry, a lot of resistance because it was the, uh, you, well, you know, that's not something we've ever done here. Yeah. Um, but again, that's, uh, that's a sentiment and a mentality, you know, that's not, uh, you know, some exclusive, uh, uh, you know, exclusive mo monopoly that we've only got going on in government. I suspect that that's, uh, you know, a sentiment that you would hear in many organizations, yeah. at least in the initial conversation. It, it is. And we've, we've, both in the people we've talked to and in our own work, we find that same component. So how, so in that, how did you overcome that obstacle? What were, what were your, what was the process that you used? And I know you talked a little bit about talking about a proof of concept and various different pieces. Were there other aspects of there or are there other things that you can think of that would help somebody who's in that same situation who might be wanting to, hey, we have this really great idea of bringing in some behavioral science, but people may not be as receptive to that. So what, what hints can you give to people about how to apply 
uh, or overcome those obstacles that you face in large organizations, whether they be government or, or non-government? Yeah, I love the way you couch your question in, in the context that we had overcome those problems. So, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, let me be forthright and tell you, we have not overcome all of that resistance. Okay, okay. Um, but um, so in terms of some of the additional steps that we have taken, um, so we tried to, uh, uh, we have done some outreach and have made uh, uh, overtures. So, uh, so again, we got a wealth of potential benefits and services offerings uh, that go on here uh, in the agency. And again, we, uh, we have a uh, financial counseling center, in fact, that we have for our employees. And uh, so we have done outreach to um, uh, some of our financial, uh, sorry, they won't, they don't like to be called counselors. They like to be called financial coaches. Uh, um, right. So, uh, but we've done outreach to some of them, uh, you know, in order to uh, get them subscribed to the goodness of this. And, and again, in the conversations that we've had with some of them, uh, again, they, 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 they immediately recognize that, uh, you know, there's some smartness, uh, you know, in trying to move forward with that. Um, uh, but again, we, uh, I don't know that we've, uh, we haven't made any substantial headway on that. Right. Uh, yet. But we're still, we're, we're, we're not giving up on that and we're still optimistic. Have you, have you done, uh, like shared the, the presentation that you did or something similar to that inside the organization to uh, leadership? Uh, from the perspective of saying, we're trying to educate you doing a, a, a lunch and learn or some type of thing about behavioral science? Because I mean, the, the presentation that you gave was a overview of a lot of different behavioral science principles and why they're important in various different pieces. And so I'm wondering if you had done any education with, with leadership inside of uh, the NSA. Uh, so, um... No, uh, so we have not done that, but again, we uh, so we are taking some baby steps to okay. uh, to, to potentially actually do the presentation uh, the same though that we delivered at the conference. Uh, actually, uh, maybe sometime even later in the month of January, uh, but principally our audience there is going to be uh, kind of our own HR cadre. Okay. Uh, again, we got to get we got to get, get we got to get the coalition of the willing. Uh, you know, from the people that we're working with before we can even uh, even contemplate this idea about going to a kind of our senior leaders. Exactly. Um, and uh, so, so that's the that's the next uh, uh, that's the next box to check off uh, on, that, our, on our on our hit parade. Building that groundswell to, yeah. to then bring it up to yep. to that. I, I, yep. that that's a good good component. So. You talked about, you threw around some, you know, really great kind of geeky terms, Chris, about mental accounting and anchoring and the bandwagon effect and framing. And for listeners who are interested in following up on, well, I'm kind of curious about this. What's the path that you took? You talked about being self-educated in this area. What, uh, what, what do you think are good sources to go to? Uh, that really helped you form a, a basis of knowledge in behavioral sciences that has led you to to start the application. Yeah, so uh, so that's a good one. So um, uh, you know, so uh, again, I will acknowledge openly that beyond my uh, 
my dime store bachelor's degree in psychology. Um, uh, again, I, I mostly self-read on most of these topics. Again, uh, you know, stuff that's appearing in the current literature. And again, I've read, uh, you know, uh, you know, a half a dozen, uh, you know, maybe a dozen of, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the books that are in the mainstream literature. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, 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 Kahneman, Tversky's stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the thinking fast and slow. Certainly, uh, you know, nudge. Uh, it, it, again, there's there's quite a bit of uh, of good digestible content that um, uh, you know the 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 mainline citizen can get out and uh, you know and read and understand. Um, and again, we've got a we have a fairly deep uh, group here, even in HR. You know, that compose really kind of our more mainline. Uh, industrial organizational uh, psychologists that we have, you know, that actually work in HR. Again, their focus is more kind of in the whole, uh, you know, personal assessment and testing and validation. Uh, but uh, again, I, you know, those are these would be my suggestions in terms of the, uh, you know, the sources and, uh, 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 you know, a knowledge. Uh, uh, resources to probably avail people to, uh, people to avail of themselves of. So of, of those, do you have a favorite one that you would, you know, the one that you suggest to people when they, if they ever ask you, I don't know if people ask you about this, but yeah. they, so, uh, start here, this is the, this is the tome that if you get this down, you'll get the, the broadest understanding or the best understanding right away. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, I, I can't necessarily say that I can, um, uh, again, there's, uh, uh, again, one of, one of the usual suspects wrote the, wrote the one on behavioral economics. I can't remember who that was. Uh, that might've been Thaler, but, uh, I, I think I've read, uh, I think I've read Kahneman's, uh, thinking fast and slow twice. Yeah. That really made me sound nerdy. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's okay. You're probably not nearly, I think I've read it. Uh, twice as well and, yeah. and underlined it both times. So. Well, uh, Dan Ariely's books, uh, Predictably Irrational, are they part yep. of uh, hit list? Yep. So I, I got, uh, so that one's sitting back on my cabinet at my desk and, uh, you know, there's a, I don't buy a lot of books, but again, uh, that one, uh, you know, one of the thicker, one of the thicker books on uh, uh, values and frames, uh, you know, that Kahneman and Tversky wrote, uh, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, I don't know, I can't claim that I've actually ever gotten through that one completely, but you know, <laughs> it's had a lot of their more experimental, uh, you know, methodology and research written up in it. Uh, you know, but there's, there's, there's tons of, uh, tons of wealth that can be mined out of those books. Uh, you know, and I think, uh, you know, the regular human capital professional, uh, you know, can probably operationalize some of those things, you know, in their day-to-day, -day, uh, in their day-to-day -day work. Well, and just from the perspective you were talking about even how you communicate, right, and, and various different things, if nothing else, not even in the design of programs, but just in the way that people are communicating human resource type information, 
uh, it can make a big difference in how people perceive a, a new program or even an existing program. And so I think those are all really good points to be made. Um, I always, if people ask me, um, which they rarely do, but sometimes they do, I, I usually lend them to, to Dan Ariely, Predictably Irrational, as, as, yeah. the, as the intro, um, just because I think he's a really good writer, and uh, you mentioned early, very digestible um, from that perspective. So those, that's, the, that's the initial book that I do. It uh, covers a lot of ground and I think is an easy and fun read. My additional tip on, on that that I give people when I, if, especially if I hand it to them, if I hand them a copy of Predictably Irrational, I, I tell them to, to turn to uh, chapter five. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you, and, and I'll even put a post-it note at the beginning of chapter five, which is the cost of social norms and say, this is a 27 page chapter. If you can get through this and you like it, then read the rest of the book. And I think it feels a little less daunting than saying, here's a book to read. Uh, so you are actually nudging people yes. in, in, in a way you're, you're with the post-it note and everything. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, I, I want to use, I, I use that chapter as a gateway drug to get them into, <laughs> into all of behavioral sciences. Uh, well, uh, I was going to ask. Uh, I was. I was going to go to our, our our questions about music. No, I have one before we go. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> so before we go there. So uh, I'm always, Chris. I'm always anxious to talk about music. Tim. Tim is our our resident musician. So he 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 has albums and plays around the the Midwest all, all the time. But um, before that, are, thinking about behavioral science and 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 again, we want to think about this from the perspective of both life and work. If is there Anything that you've taken from uh, your, as you said, it's kind of your self-taught kind of introduction into this, but what would be a hint or tip that you would give to our listeners on how they can apply this, whether it be in, in life, in work, in some other aspect? Yeah, so, um, yeah, again, sh uh, shamelessly, I'll fall back on my conference response to that. Uh, and and my answer then, as as it is now, would be um, really uh, you know be uh, be sensitized, uh, you know, and be aware. Again, most of the most of the areas where we've made any inroads, uh, you know, in the you know in the potential application of behavioral science has been in instances where uh, you know we observed you know some sort of an effect. Uh, you know, in people or employees and our workforce in general, and we had no good explanation for, for what was going on, and and th that was that was typically the the catalyst that got us to the well. Wait a minute, this wasn't what we thought was going to happen. Uh, you know what? You know, was there something else that uh, you know was going on behind the scenes? What were people thinking? Uh, you know, and is there a is there a potentially uh, you know a psychological behavioral explanation, and and if so, you know, is there something we could do differently, uh, you know, different, smarter, faster, uh, phrase differently, uh, you know, that would um, um, uh, improve the outcome uh, in the future. 
Okay. So that that leads me to ask, what uh, what projects do you have coming up? What are the what are the not knowings that are pushing you forward and that you're working on now or hope to work on in the near future? Uh, yeah, there's. Uh, I don't know that. I, I don't know that we have anything. Well, so um, we're we're wrestling with again. So my my focus again is primarily you know, in the whole compensation related area. So, yep. so we're in surprisingly, despite what people think, uh, you know, federal agencies don't have all the money in the world. Uh, <laughs> um, and so consequently, again, we're, we're, we're in the last three to five years, again, we're constantly being faced with making uh, harder budgetary decisions uh, specifically in terms of where we would invest money from a human capital perspective, okay. and we've been uh, we've been more and more uh, walking down the road of this sort of more differentiated, segmented workforce investment model. You know, where we're um, regularly investing in a more narrowed uh, perspective in you know specific types of work. Uh, you know, particular job titles, potentially even investing in specific people. Okay. Um, and uh, certainly one of the things that we would love to try to get a handle on would be, uh, you know, if money is short, uh, again, my interest, of course, is, uh, you know, let's, let's lean in and pay the individual or individuals whatever we need to, but not a dollar more. Okay. You know, so it's, it's, it's that issue of what's the, what's the potential um, uh, tipping point or that threshold, you know, where I can now influence the person, you know, either to stay with the organization or to, you know, feel better about themselves or feel better about us as an employer. Uh, again, but without the idea that, you know, I, I you know, I've wasted uh, $50 or $50,000, yeah, you know, yeah. more than what was necessary. So I think, I, I think that's the next uh, big high frontier for us. Uh, but again, uh, a theme that you'll hear me say frequently is the difficulty with that, of course, is that we're dealing with people and they're all different. Yeah. So I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, and it, I think that goes back into some of the earlier conversation that we had where you were talking about that, that J&D, that just noticeable difference piece. And so applying all of those facets into this. But again, every individual is different. And, and you even, even if you've worked with that person for a number of years, you, you still don't fully understand all of their motivations and their drives and what are those, you know, where is that tipping point for them? And so I, uh, I wish you luck in, in being able to, well, to well, and of course it's further complicated by the fact that, yeah, I knew Kurt and Tim on Friday, but yeah. by next Monday or Tuesday, you're going to be different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, they, oh, things, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's one of the things that I always talk about is, is the, I fear when people talk about uh, motivational assessments 
uh, and using, you know, well, why don't we just, you know, assess, you know, what motivates them. And I'm, I always come back to the point of, you know, motivational assessments are great for a snapshot in a moment in time. Um, but as you said, by next Monday, the world has moved on. They might be in a totally different situation. Uh, we use the four drive model a lot. And I think I've shared this with you, uh, Chris, but, you know, it's about under, you know, the drive to acquire and achieve, drive to bond and belong, drive to challenge and comprehend, and that drive to defend and, and have a purpose and various different things. And we can measure how well people, you know, score on that, and what's important. But I always go, you know what, they might be big on bond and belong right now and challenge, but hey, you know, next week their, their spouse might get laid off and all of a sudden, hey, that, that drive to acquire is going to really ramp up because now they aren't as satisfied with their financial space that they're in or other factors happen in life. And so it's really hard to understand um, and get a good gauge of somebody um, that is long lasting. Yeah. Right. So the the addendum to that, of course, from a compensation perspective, and again, you know, again, what I'm what I'm speaking about next is heresy, which is, yeah, because because your uh, motivational um, focus yeah. changed, uh, you know, uh, this week to next week, uh, you know, I should be prepared on an almost real time basis to modify my whole employer value proposition, uh, what I pay you, the benefits that, you know, will uh, mean the most to you, I should be almost uh, ready or willing, you know, to modify that proposition on something a close, uh, approaching a real-time basis. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. See, now I took the wind out of your sail, didn't I? <laughs> totally. So again, getting back into that application of that just seems so daunting. That that seems like a high mountain to climb. Yeah. So so my, my suspicion is that um, we will approximate that probably here in the next five to 10 years. Wow. So I think the, the, uh, the, the inroads with technology and machine learning and artificial intelligence are going to be the the pieces of the puzzle that will fall into place that will in fact allow us to do that and you know so again on your best day uh, you know if i'm modifying uh, again some of those employer offerings to you on a <laughs> forgive me week to week basis because things are changing with you Right. Uh, doesn't that make you a better, more productive, more satisfied, more engaged uh, employee? Well, I know I've heard I've heard people talking about, and and I haven't necessarily gotten into these conversations, but I've heard people discussing the that individualization of incentives, right? Moving towards a much more robust. Uh, component where it isn't a one-size-fits-all, but this, this incentive, this particular short-term incentive is designed specifically for you, and this one is then designed for Tim, and this one is designed for me, and they're all different, and that in itself seems daunting, but it sounds like you're saying it's a step beyond that. It goes to a, even a larger perspective of uh, overall. The, yeah, the employer-employee relationship is uh, is able to be modified in a real-time basis. That that's uh, 
that's a cool thought. That's a really cool thought. Sure. So you know that in the federal government, you know, espousing something like that on an individual level, again, is, is, is right up there with, you know, a suggestion that you abolish the Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, an the answer to that is, if you say that again, we're coming over and burning your house down. <laughs> because it's, it's, you know, it's that foreign to, uh, you know, the existing culture and the mindset and all those kind of good things. So I, I don't know, <laughs> don't know that we're going to be early adopters of that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but again, my belief is that that's the, you know, that's the next high frontier. Oh, cool. Well, thank you, Chris. Um, so with that, uh, we always have a, we have a, we're called Behavioral Grooves and, and Tim is our resident musician, but we always ask a musical question. And so, yeah, this is where we get to talk about music. <laughs> this is, Tim gets all excited, you hear it in his voice. Um, so if you had to have a theme song for you, what, what would you, what would your theme song be? So fortunately I put some thought into this. I'm not sure it was a lot, but the one that popped into my head uh, sorry, a little bit of ironic play of play on words there a yeah, little bit. Yeah, we, we got the system one, system two breakdown there. <laughs> exactly. Um, so my selection is uh, uh, a white rabbit by the uh, Jefferson Airplane. Oh my gosh! Wow. wow. So again, I'm mostly going to the the you know the closing line in the song uh, from our our best friend uh, Grace Slick. Yeah. And and the and the the, the closing phrase. Feed your head. <laughs> there you go. Right, I, I, right. Well, was it like uh, you're going to talk about which? Isn't isn't that what we're doing here? Uh, <laughs> uh, Excellent. Well, yeah, Chris, see, I, I knew you'd like that. Love thank it. You. Yeah, love it. Chris, thank you very much. We appreciate this. It has been um, fascinating. I want to uh, just offer up. I know we had uh, you. You're going to be speaking at a couple conferences. Um, this year and wanted to yep. offer a chance for you to plug those so oh, good gosh uh, shame, shameless self-promotion yes. um so for those of you uh living in the upper uh portions of the united states uh if you want to if you want to join me down in miami uh, <laughs> right uh in, in in february which well, <laughs> which yes. isn't a bad deal uh again a co-worker and i again are doing a presentation at the uh uh, the Human Capital Institute in Miami on workforce planning and uh, analytics. Uh, we're going to do a presentation on a uh, uh, an analytic tool that, again, we've uh, labeled the Human Capital Readiness Index. Uh, and then subsequently, a different coworker and I, uh, as Kurt already mentioned, are going to be doing a presentation at the World at Work Conference in Dallas in May. And uh, strangely enough, that one is going to uh, talk about the the, the potential uh, future of digital total rewards, given the advances, uh, you know, in artificial intelligence, intelligent automation, uh, and machine learning. Wow. Well, we will. Um, we'll see you there. We'll see you there. Tim and I are presenting down at the World at Work conference in May as well, but we are definitely going to. Uh, Come and listen in on your conference. Uh, good. All right. Now I'll at least have two people in the audience then. Yeah. <laughs> hey, last time you had a overflowing room. I, I was lucky to get in there early because uh, uh, 
my partner who, who came a little bit later was not able, he, he missed it. So he couldn't get in because it was, the doors were shut and fire code wouldn't allow any more in. So I'm assuming it's going to be the same um, as we move forward. So thank All you right. very much, Chris. Thank you, yes, Chris. Well, yep. Yeah, thanks very much for having me today, guys. No worries. All right. Our pleasure. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral grooves interview, have a free flowing discussion on some of those topics and whatever else comes into our crazy heads. <laughs> Do you always have to say crazy? I, well, you know, it's one of those things. I think sometimes we are crazy as, as, uh, or as I should say, irrational. Ah, yes, the irrational man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, James Heyman, don't uh, call in with uh, complaints about rationality and irrational and all the behavioral <laughs> economics. All right, so with that, Tim, let's let's talk a little bit about our interview with Chris. What what were some of the the topics that you found fascinating or interesting? Well, first, the whole idea that the NSA is using behavioral sciences for the employees of the NSA. I think it's it's cool and it's kind of wild and it uh, it was kind of a mind bender. Yes, I thought it was it was actually fantastic. Um, yeah. I am I am very pleased at the the uh, uh, United States government being forward thinking enough to be able to bring that in. And actually I will attribute it a lot to Chris. I uh, I met Chris last year. Uh, we were both presenting at World at Work on a conference, and I got a call out of the blue. Actually, it was an email from the NSA because somebody was saying, you're talking on the same subject that I am, and it happened to be Chris. <laughs> and so I thought for sure this was a scam, and I, I summarily dismissed it until I got another email from him. And then I started thinking, oh, my gosh. Maybe I'm getting in trouble if I don't uh, follow up. <laughs> Luckily, uh, it wasn't anything bad, and, and I uh, met Chris, and he's a fantastic and fascinating man. So. Yeah, it, 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 and it was, a, it was a great conversation. What struck you, Kurt? What, what do you think was, um, what, what are a couple of your big takeaways from this conversation? So I think the really interesting thing, and, and this is a piece that I don't know if I struggle with or if it's just an element that I think needs to have a lot of focus put on it, but the element of ethics and how do you ethically apply behavioral science principles inside organizations or even outside organizations? And how do you take those uh, principles that at some point can seem manipulative um, or very much influential in people's behavior and variety of other things? How do you do that in an ethical way? Yeah, because here we are. Uh, using using tools and techniques that are driving um, some kind of exchange with the unconscious, and when we're doing that, if we're if the recipient is truly unconscious of it, then I, I think I think we really do have to be sensitive to the ethical standards. Uh, you and I ran into this at, at a conference recently where we were talking to someone who was doing something that we thought was was intellectually interesting but ethically kind of marginal. Yeah, and it's a fine line. Where do you draw that line on what is or is not yeah. ethical? Yeah. Um, and I think to a degree, it's, it's, uh, it's subjective, right? It is 
what is what is ethical for one person is it the same for another and and how do you discriminate between the two so See, my brain is echoing uh, passages that father Cahill uh, spoke to us <laughs> in uh, in uh, my junior year in college uh, ethics course and how ethics are not situational and you shouldn't get caught up in the situational side of it uh, please don't send letters and emails about our ethics <laughs> because we're we're trying to do the right thing. But um, actually, send you know what if you've got ideas, uh, let let's we could have a whole discussion around the ethics. This could be a whole whole session on ethics. Yeah. But I think it's a it, it is an important note, and I'm very uh, again happy that Chris is thinking about that that there it, it's being applied. Uh, with some rigor uh, yeah. inside of organizations. And I think it's something that we need to really think about too, uh, that yes, we need to apply some rigor to it and not just do it because we can, but do it um, with a sense of purpose and a sense of goodness, uh, if that's even a word. So, sure. Yeah. Let's make it a word. There you go. Goodness. Yeah. yeah. All right. My so, goodness. My <laughs> <laughs> and we digress already. <laughs> I was I was really struck by uh, Chris's very forward thinking. Uh, again, maybe just the the dynamics of talking to someone who's in the federal government, and and he said the employee value proposition could change real time. Yes, it could, it could change weekly, monthly, uh, but it could change real time, and that is something that you and I have talked about over the years, but it's mind-bending to actually start thinking about the application of that and to actually have access to data that would allow an employer to change the, the value proposition on a regular basis. Are you going to get that, Kurt? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just our next appointment that oh, okay. we have. Um, <laughs> no, but with, with that, I think it's really important to think about how technology and uh, AI are allowing that individualization and that customization to actually probably happen at some point within our lifetimes. Ten years ago, talking about individualized rewards or individualized you know employee value propositions yeah. would have been it's a nice intellectual thought but from an applications perspective was something that was beyond the realm of possibility. I don't think it is beyond the realm of possibility anymore. I think that this is something that in 10 years we might look back on and be saying, Oh my gosh! Do you remember those old dark ages when everybody had the same value proposition? <laughs> got the for, same message. Got the same message and the same yeah. you know rewards and yeah, you know. And I think there's a an element of consistency that is needed that you need to have some consistency, but also if you can individualize those, I think that's a powerful tool. Yeah, it's. Um, I wonder how long it's going to take. I suppose. Yeah, it's like it, self-driving it, cars, right? How long until we get self-driving cars? Virtually inevitable, right? <laughs> it's just a matter of when. And, and uh, I would encourage listeners to, if they've got ideas about this, I'd love to hear from people. Yes. I think it'd be really interesting. To, we, we could actually maybe do a whole segment just on that. There we go. All right, Tim. So you always ask me about music <laughs> in these. I'm switching it up on you today. You oh, don't even know about this. Oh, no. So instead of music, my question, you can still ask me about music. I know you will. Okay. 
But what are you reading that you think would be uh, interesting for our listeners to, to, to look at or to, to read? Or is it something, you know, it could just be no, recent articles or I, a book? Uh, I, I almost, uh, I've just about finished Carol Dweck's book on mindset. And just want to call attention to it's really, it's rigorous um, and disciplined research that she's put into this. And Mindset is just great. Uh, I think it's, it's a really terrific book as a policy book to really get lay a foundation for how to think about um, you know how we how we value ourselves and how we value our associates and and uh, she she works a lot in the educational world so so that's really um, that's really good but I also if I could I just reread um, we've been talking a lot about Bob, Bob Cialdini recently and so I just reread Influence and was surprised at. Um, how much stood up? You know, this was what published first in '88, I think it was, something and like that. Something yeah. like that, and uh, and how well uh, so much of the research uh, stands up uh, today. That there's really good lessons. Uh, well, in and, that. and and when we listened to um, uh, Cialdini when he was talking, that was one of his uh, components that he why he hasn't written another book subsequent until persuasion came out yeah. because he wanted he wanted the book to be able to last and uh, be as as long lasting and have the the, the shelf life that yeah. influence has and it really does have that influence going back to mindset uh, one of my favorite books and I think what I like about it is we use some of the insights from that with our own kids. So when we give praise to our children, we don't talk about how smart they are. We talk about, oh, you got an A, fantastic. You must have worked really hard on that yeah. as opposed to how smart you are. And I think that's uh, there are some insights from that that can be applied uh, not just to children, but to employees, to spouses, to uh, friends, everybody. Um, and oh, I found that insight to be in, invaluable in uh, the leadership role that I that I've had in years past. Uh, you know, praising uh, team members, uh, that especially that reported to me for their effort rather than just the results. Yeah, because. Uh, y- because that's what work is. Work is so much more about effort and so much less about results. But all this emphasis is put on results when that just happens at the very end. That's just like crossing the finish line. Well, and the, the interesting thing, um, maybe it's not the interesting thing, but a interesting let's, thing. Let's, let's call it the interesting <laughs> thing. Let's, let's just The interesting it. thing on this is that I think effort gets short cited because uh, people think that it isn't quantitative, or if it is, it is easily um, gamed, right? So how many, you know, in in particular sales, right? What are the steps to the sale that you Mm -hmm. can reward or recognize? But those things seem like they're either very simple to do or or they're not measurable at all. Like how good was your discussion with your client? How, um, or how many times you, you met with a client? Well, that's a pretty easy metric that you can just do, but it actually doesn't drive results. But if you think about the actual steps going into the sale, the effort that it takes, the planning, all of those things, yes, it's a little bit harder and it's not as clean as saying we have to sell 100 units, 
but I think in the long run, it really is the thing that drives, I mean, that's what motivates, right? And that's what drives people's uh, mindset, as we've talked about. Could this be part of our lazy brain answering the easier question? When we're trying to quantify, uh, when we're trying to quantify what has happened, it's just easier to ask the question, well, what results yielded were, were, you know, actually came out of the process rather than to try to evaluate how many, how many presentations were made, how many cold calls were made, how, you know, uh, how often was the, the decision maker in the room when, a, when there was a, a meeting, things like that. Well, and it gets back to when we talked with Scott Jeffries, right? And he talked about people, it's not monetized. You know, there's no way, so how many presentations you do and various different things don't lead to a dollar outcome right. that leaders can right. then look at and say, oh, here's an ROI on this because That's I have right. a specific number. That, I think, is one of those interesting facets that uh, you can put that monetary component on most results. Yes. It's much harder to do. So, yes. Part of that can be our lazy brain, not having, wanting to do the math, not wanting to do that hard work. So that's a long, that's a very long answer from me that led to a discussion. But I am curious the same thing about you. So what are you reading these days? What what is new and interesting on your nightstand for for reading, Kurt? Oh, fine. I had an answer for the music question, and <laughs> you throw this back at the book question, my my own question back. Um, Actually, I was reading fantasy for the past couple nights. I stayed up way too late. Well, which was? Uh, was Senwin's Tower. It's a. It's an interesting. It's actually an, a unique book. But um, okay. from a from a work perspective, okay. uh, the the book that I was reading is Dan Pink's When, oh. um, his new book. Uh, we just got it. I, I haven't finished it. I, I'm into uh, probably chapter two, uh, but it, it's it's pretty interesting, at okay. least from the perspective. It, basically, the premise is uh, time. And, and the, the time factor of, of how we do things and when we do things plays a bigger part of our performance than we think. And he brings in some of the studies of, you know, prison parolees getting let out, you know, earlier in the morning versus in the then afternoon. Late in the afternoon, right, because uh, of the parole test, board. Test scores, standardized test scores. You want your kid to take the standardized test early in the morning uh, versus later in the morning because across the board, the early morning standardized tests they do better on. And so I'll be very interested to find out uh, a little bit more about some of the other research that he brings into it. I have a, I love Dan Pink and I hate Dan Pink. So, and with that, I think uh, our next interview is here. So we should wrap this up. Excellent. Just want to make sure that everybody uh, can uh, grab uh, the Behavioral Grooves podcast on whatever their favorite location is, uh, iTunes or whatever their favorite store is. And uh, thank you very much for listening in. We'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.